How are we doing this morning? It's good to see you guys. Hey, um, we are in this marriage series where we've been looking at uh, just, we're going to be looking at a couple hot button topics. Today, I'm uh, just going to go ahead and get the cat out of the bag. We're talking about divorce. This is important for us to understand as uh, a church because uh, marriage is the thing that God gave us as a picture of uh, his relation, Jesus' relationship to Christ. And so um, I was... Got done preaching last week, as I often do. Uh, usually I go out in the lobby. Last week I stayed up here up front in case anybody needed to, to talk through the topic we talked about last week. And uh, one of you approached me uh, and said, well, I've, I've read ahead. And um, I said, okay, you're not supposed to do that. Um, and uh, you asked the question, so does the next passage mean that I'm a double adulterer? I said, well, help me understand what you mean by that question. Well, my first wife cheated on me and we were divorced. And then I got remarried and I cheated on my wife. So does that make me a double adulterer? I said, well, come back next week and we'll cover that. No, I said, <laughs> I said that's a good question. What's your view on divorce and what an adulterer is from scripture? And um, and we got to this conversation, and, and honestly, that, that made me realize how important this conversation is, um, how important it is for us to really understand uh, what does God believe about divorce, uh, because I think there's varying uh, opinions about that. I think we're not all in agreement with what that looks like, and in order for us to really have a Christian worldview, to, to approach things the way that God would want us to, we have to understand this. Um, we have to understand why it's important. And so if you have your Bible, let's go ahead and open up with me uh, to Matthew chapter 5. That's where we'll be. Um, I want to say this, and then I want to pray for us, and we'll get into this. If you have experienced a divorce and walked through a divorce, I want you to know it's not a spiritual death, okay? It does not mean that God wants nothing to do with you any longer. It does not mean that you cannot return to the cross, to Jesus, that you still can't have a relationship with him. And so I uh, just want you to hear that before we even get started this morning. But let me pray for us and then we'll jump into our passage. Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We do thank you that we get to lift your name as our high king forever. As we sing those words, it's just a reminder that our, our goal in life is to follow after you to desire what you desire, to have a heart for what you have a heart for. And so I just pray this morning, as we look at this, that you would open our ears and our hearts and our minds to, to take in what your word has to say, what you said specifically. Would you teach us why uh, this is an important matter in today's world? Would you help us uh, as the church look different from the world? Holy Spirit, would you uh, remove, if we walked in here with a heart of stone, would you remove that and give us a heart of flesh to hear your word? We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter five. Before we hit that, remember last week we defined marriage. We made sure why God instituted marriage, God's purpose for marriage between a man and a woman was to be a picture of Christ's love and relationship to the church. So, uh, we want to continue to get that in front of you and remind you of that each week because it's an important starting point for us in our Christian worldview. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 says this, You have heard the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. 
And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. Pretty quick, short statement, to be honest, from Jesus. Um, as he's teaching in the greater scheme of things, um, as we go back and look, we're talking about the Beatitudes, the character of uh, those who are a disciple that follow after Jesus. And so here he is now teaching on divorce. And, um, and we've really got to understand context for this one. I mean, I talk about context all the time. Uh, it is the most important part because we can pull one of these verses out and, and run down a rabbit trail and believe this is what this is actually saying. And unless we actually know the context and who he's speaking to, um, it's hard for us to understand this passage. And so uh, let me give you a little bit of the context. At this time, uh, there's this collision that's taking place between uh, Greeks, or, or excuse me, uh, Gentiles and Jews. Okay, uh, Gentiles and Jews. You knew that. Jesus uh, left and went and, and preached to the Gentiles. He, he was Jewish. And, and the Jews, the teachers of religious law, were frustrated by that. And so here's this collision that's happening in the culture. And what we need to understand is the Gentiles were made up of Greeks and Romans. Now, Greeks held a terrible view on marriage. In fact, divorce was rampant uh, among Greek culture. And it was almost an expectation of Greek culture. Uh, and then you combine that with the Romans. Now, Rome held a pretty high standard of uh, marriage. They were kind of the opposite of that. And not only that, but they also held a high standard of women at the time, which was strange because most cultures and most groups of people did not in Jesus' time. And so, in fact, we, we know that's one of the criticisms of Jesus, right? Jesus uh, interacted with women. Jesus uh, had women who followed him and, and even helped him within ministry. He acknowledged women often and uh, that was something that was always a criticism of Jesus because the Jewish culture uh, also held this kind of low vision of women, okay? But then you also have this Jewish culture that's now colliding with these two that upholds marriage. They believe that marriage was God's idea. And so they are the ones who really institute from the beginning, like marriage is the most important thing we have. And so you have this all kind of taking place at the same time. Now, we know that Rome uh, conquered Greece in 86 BC. And so here comes these Romans, and by all means, politically, they overtook Greece. Really influenced Greece, changed everything about uh, uh, Greek uh, culture. And except for one thing, marriage, marriage. Really, when it came to marriage, uh, the Greek culture influenced the Romans. And so what happens is the Romans end up beginning to not view marriage very highly. So therefore, all the Gentiles don't view marriage with a whole lot of uh, validity. Now, we have to understand where does the Jewish view of marriage start. We know this because uh, we've read our Bibles, but back in Genesis chapter one. So flip all the way back to the beginning of the Bible with me. And in Genesis chapter one, Jewish culture really based their view of mar marriage off of uh, the creation of man and woman. It says this in Genesis chapter one, verse 27. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Later at the end of chapter two, he says, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Right? There's this marriage that's established and we know that it's established and, and Jews would have known this, like the first, and this is the very first command that God gives in the Bible, in scripture. The very first command is this, 
Be fruitful and multiply. Now, there's only one relationship in which that can take place physically between a man and a woman, right? That, that is within the context of marriage. And, and that is important. Jew, Jewish culture upheld that and believed that to be true. But they had kind of two problems. One, they didn't really see women very highly. Oh, they saw them more as possessions. I'm just be honest with you. And they didn't see uh, their wives as a counterpart or helper the way God created it. They saw them just as a, a possession. But then also uh, there was just this influence that was happening from the culture of, uh, you know, marriage is just something that is a little bit more like flippant. We can be married or we can divorce. And, and so here you have the establishment of marriage. But the truth is, is that it, we all know sin enters into the world. And then we begin uh, experiencing all the repercussions of sin. And so what happens really fast is that marriage starts to fall apart a little bit, okay? And, and as it falls apart, if you just fast forward, let's fast forward to Deuteronomy chapter 24. We're gonna fast forward a little bit because Moses actually addresses it in a quick little section in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And he's assuming because it had already happened, that it's already happening. Like divorce is already happening. And so he uses this verse where he says in verse uh, one of chapter 24, suppose a man marries a woman, but she does not please him. Having discovered something wrong with her, he writes a document of divorce and hands it to her and sends her away from his house. Then she leaves, when she leaves the house, she is free to marry another man. But if the second husband also turns against her, writes a document of divorce and hands it to her and sends her away, or if he dies, the first husband may not marry her again, for she has been defiled. That would be detestable to the Lord. You must not bring guilt upon the land the Lord your God has given you as a special possession. Let me back up to the beginning, because he talks about a certain situation, obviously should, was happening and taking place. But he says, suppose a man marries a woman, but she does not please him. And then this part, having discovered something wrong with her. Now, Almost every translation you look at in scripture says something wrong. And those two words aren't a great representation of the original language, the word that is used. And it actually does us no favor to read it that way. Something wrong uh, could end up in being a whole host of things, right? When really, and I don't do this often, but I'm going to do it. Maybe some of you will appreciate this. I'm going to go back to uh, the King James Version. Okay. I know, I know. <laughs> You're like, uh-huh, let me see what you're doing here, Lance. Um, back to the King James translation, because it says this, because he hath found some uncleanness in her. Now, something wrong and uncleanness are two different things, right? And so for us to translate in the NLT, NIV, ESV, this being something wrong, uh, I think is where it got sidetracked, right? Where it, it becomes the issue where we read what Jesus has written about. But he says something wrong, where the, the KJV says uncleanness. And based off of Jesus' conversation in Matthew 5 and 19, what we would know that to be would be uh, sexual relations with someone other than the spouse. So adultery. So the problem is, is that when we read that verse, not understanding the whole scope of the conversation, we can take something wrong to mean a lot of different things. And by the time Jesus comes and speaks in Matthew 5, that's exactly what happened. You know, like you, you, like, you like say something and you like to your kids and you decide they, they can decide what that's going to mean for them. 
You know, I have two kids. It's going to mean two completely different things by the time they come back and interpret whatever it is that I said. This is what happened. Okay, so there was this one thought that was conservative. Okay, Shammai. It's known as Shammai. And that was the thought that uh, marriage was a covenant between two people and it's only allowed to be broke by divorce because of adultery or because of a sexual relationship with someone other than their spouse. Then the second thought was like the more liberal thought by the time Jesus speaks in Matthew chapter five, and that was called Hillel. And this took a much broader stance on divorce, and it really took something wrong uh, very, very literally. So it was, there were an infinite amount of reasons why you could divorce your wife, including, but not limited to, if she burnt breakfast. Right? Like, I'm not, I'm not kidding. Like, if I find something wrong, she burned breakfast today and that is something wrong and I'm just fed up with her burning breakfast. Like, that's what Jesus is now speaking to in Matthew chapter five. So by the time we get to Matthew chapter five, you have two different views on something wrong out of Moses' words and they're just making decisions willy-nilly however they want to. In fact, most of the time, you combine that with this Greek influence, which one do you think they chose? A more conservative or liberal view? They don't conserve, I mean, they obviously chose the liberal view. Like, I can divorce my wife for anything as long as I just give her a note. As long as I make it legal. And so again, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, You have heard the law say, a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. That's back to Moses. But I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. And so the, the only grounds, as we gather from this, the only grounds that is okay for divorce is unfaithfulness. It is having a relationship with someone outside of your marriage. And so by the time you get to, let's flip over to Matthew chapter 19. Time you get to this conversation, which is a little bit deeper conversation, more lengthy conversation around divorce, which actually has to do with exactly what we just talked about, these two views that existed in their culture. Verse three in chapter 19 says this, some Pharisees came and tried to trap Jesus with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now, the whole, point, the whole point that the Pharisees are asking this question is because they've been influenced by this, right? Basically, what they're asking is like, are you Shammai or are you Hillel? Like, do you believe that only for adultery or do you believe that a man can divorce his wife for any reason that he wants to? They're trying to trap Jesus because if, if he chooses one or the other, that, then they're going to put him to the wall. He's wrong. The thing is, is that Jesus knows that's what's happening. Jesus wants to make the point that this is not about the reasons for which you should divorce your wife. It should be, better question should be, why are you not loving your wife the way I've called you to love your wife and upholding the sanctity of marriage? But at this point, the Pharisees have been influenced by the Greeks and by all these different opinions. And so they've come and they're going to try to trap Jesus. And they ask this question. And they're thinking they got, they've got him. Verse four, haven't you read the scriptures? These are Pharisees. Yes, they've read the scriptures. Jesus knows that, right? Like he, he's going right at it. Haven't you read the scriptures? Really? You're going to ask me this question. Have you not read scripture? Do you not know what it says? Jesus replied, they recorded that from the beginning, God made male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united in one. Genesis chapter two. 
Since they are no longer two, but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Now, he takes this verse as he looks back onto this foundation in Genesis, and he says, this is why, right? Because they're supposed to be married to one another. They're supposed to be joined together. There's this mystery about this that we know, like there's two people, and then when they get married uh, and consummate marriage, now they are one. Now, how does that work? I, I don't know. Like my wife's over there. She's not connected to me. We're not one. She's still over there, right? But we are one. It is, again, the mystery of marriage. And then Jesus lays on just to make sure that we're on the same page. He says, listen, since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Let no one split apart what God has joined together. Now, God brought the two of them together in marriage, and therefore uh, nothing should separate those two. It's not intended to be separated. Well, we went... Uh, uh, couple, well, I guess a month ago, uh, to Cuba, my son and I did. And, and one of the illustrations that we were using was the water and we'd pour dirt into the water uh, and we would uh, say, you know, this is what sin does to our lives. And then as we pulled out a cup of it, we'd be like, no matter, you know, like we, we want to do good things all the time. We want to try to do good works. And, and no matter how many good works you do, you, you can't take the dirt out of this water. I mean, like, and so we would literally stick our fingers in there and try to like pull the dirt out. You can't do that. Right? So then we take the clean glass of water and we pour it in and be like, oh, I'm going to do all these good works with this clean water. And you pour it into this dirty cup. And what happens? It's still dirty water. It doesn't matter how much clean water you pour in there. The same is true when it comes to marriage. Like once these two things have been joined together, they're not intended to be separated. In fact, they're not even able to be separated. I would go to as far as to say that even if you do get divorced, there's still that mystery piece that exists that you will always be joined in some way, shape, or form spiritually to that one person that you first married. Like it, it, you can't fully separate the two of them. That's what this passage and what Jesus is saying. Now, let's keep reading. Verse seven. Then why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of a divorce and send her away? They asked. Now, again, what happens when we take one verse out of scripture and out of context? We look silly like the Pharisees do here, okay? Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it was not what God had originally intended. And I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. Again, Jesus is reiterating the only reason for divorce would be being unfaithful, adultery. But what he says is, notice what he says there, that Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts. Right? It's already taking place. When Moses said, suppose, he wasn't saying that as if it never existed and they had never thought of this thing before. When he says, suppose a man uh, decides he's found something he doesn't like in his wife and so this is how he can do it. He's referring to something that's already happened. And notice what he says. He gives a concession. When Moses addresses divorce, he didn't issue a command. He issues a concession because they'd already engaged in divorce regularly. And so, no, divorce is never a command. Divorce is never something that God intended. It was not what God had originally intended, but it was a concession to what? To, to our hard hearts. To the sin that hardens our hearts 
towards our spouse. I read this this past week and I thought it was good in the context of what we're talking about right now. I read this quote in a commentary. If a woman did not have a hard heart, she would never commit sexual immorality against her husband. There'd be no need for divorce. If a husband did not have any hardness in his heart, he could forgive and still look upon his wife with favor in his eyes, even though she was guilty of sexual immorality. But because God knows there is hardness in their hearts, both in the offending and the offended parties, he grants a concession for divorce. I believe you could replace uh, any of those husband and wife uh, in between either of those two things and, and the adultery between either one of them, and it would be the same. The same remains the truth. The issue is the hardness of our hearts. Yet if someone has a biblical grounds, which is a relationship outside of the marriage, sexual relationship outside the marriage, there's no other bounds for a reason for divorce. That's all there is to it. And so no, if breakfast is burnt, no, if it's not making you happy, no, if whatever, you can't just give a notice of divorce and send her away as the Pharisees interpreted Moses' passage. Moses permitted it as a concession to your hard hearts. And so to answer the question I got asked last week, are you an adulterer because the first relationship ended in divorce because she had a relationship outside of your marriage? No. The Bible says that's a concession that you can divorce because of adultery. Are you an adulterer because when you got remarried to your second wife, you had a relationship with someone outside of your marriage? Yes. Yeah, you are. And you know what? Because you humbled yourself, asked for forgiveness from God and your wife, and your wife looked upon you a favor, you should be the most grateful person in the world because you're still married. And because your wife understands this better than you understood it. That's what the Bible is telling us. Listen, if you put all of this together, there's only one reason that divorce would be considered an option. And that's unfaithfulness, that's adultery, that's a sexual relationship with another outside of marriage. Let me clarify, because I know you're thinking this, ladies in the room. Uh, most people think that ancient Israel is only a man was allowed to divorce a woman. That's not true. Right? Women had the option to divorce a man as well. We know that because in Mark 10, 12, Jesus says, and if a woman divorces her husband and marries someone else, da, 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 right? Jesus right there is acknowledging that women also divorced men. That was something that took place and was true. But oftentimes it's written from the men's perspective because, as I said, Jewish culture. So we know the concession was both for husbands and wives, but it's not what God established. James Boyce put it this way. Uh, this is what God, God's standard is. Chastity before marriage, fidelity after marriage, and a lifelong commitment to one married partner to another with no thought of divorce. Right, that's, that's what his desire is, right? Abstinence before marriage, like fidelity, loyalty after marriage, and then this lifelong commitment between two people that divorce is not even an option. It's not even a thought. 
That, that is what God established and what he desires. And you might say like, wow, like, just like, <laughs> go back to Matthew chapter 19. I love this part. Verse 10, the disciples then said to him, if this is the case, it's better not to marry. I'm like, disciples, you're finally paying attention, you know? Like, good job, right? It's better not to marry. Because why? Because this is a horribly high standard. But we're talking about the one relationship that God has given that reflects Jesus' love for the church. It should be a horribly high standard. Single people, you should be thinking about that high standard as you're looking for the person who you're going to marry. Like that, that's, that's it. It is, it is forever, always. Now, when I was born, I was born with some web fingers, these two specifically right here. Um, and because of that, when I got married, I had a wedding ring and there's really no, it's just skin. There's no like cartilage there in between my bone on the inside of my two fingers that were webbed, webbed together. And so when I'd have my wedding ring on and like someone would squeeze my hand or I'd hit my hand in the wrong way, like it would just, that metal would grind into the bone of my finger and it would just like send a shock up my arm. It was the weirdest feeling. I, I did not like it. Uh, I still wore my wedding band till I lost it. I did. I lost it. <clears throat> and uh, we, were have, uh, we were here in Noblesville. We were having a middle school lock-in. Uh, and we got done. Amanda was out of town with the kids. And you know what? I got done with the middle school lock-in. And I said, I kept telling her I was going to get a tattoo ring. And she's like, you're not going to do that. You hate needles. And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm a man. I'm going to do that. You know? And she's like, you're not ever going to do that. You're wuss. Um, and... Finally, after the middle school lock-in, I was like, you know what, We're, I'm, in, I'm, just, I'm, I'm exhausted. I've been up all night. What's a better time to go get a tattoo than now, right? So I drove straight from the church, middle school lock-in, over to the tattoo parlor, and I waited in line with people who did not look like me. Um, <laughs> we had some good conversations, you know, and uh, they're like, what are you, are you lost? And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm here for a tattoo, you know, and, um, and I ended up getting this ring tattoo, right? And uh, there's a thicker line that's uh, closer to my hand. Uh, that's for my wife. There's two uh, smaller lines next. Uh, and that's for my two kiddos. And uh, I always say I got them in that order because blood flows out of my heart that way. And my wife comes first and the two of them come second. Taylor's good with that. Emma hates that. Okay. She's number one in the house, whether you want to like it or not. All right. But when Amanda saw this, she, she, she her response was like, like, that's forever. You know, and I'm like, it is, right? <laughs> I, don't, this is, I mean, we're going to be together forever, so why can't I just get a tattoo? It's fine. Then I don't have to take it off and put it back on. It doesn't hurt, you know? Her other question was like, well, what if something happens to me? And, and this, I promise to this day, this was just right off the cuff. I said, well, there's more room up here for another line. If I, <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 Some things never change, right? So, yeah, she was, uh, yeah, she was ready to smack me at that point. Um, no thought of divorce. It's a terribly high standard. And so at the end of this, what, like, what do we put, when we put all this stuff together, this is what I get. Marriage is not about your happiness. Marriage is about your holiness. Like if it's about your happiness, it, yours have probably been over a long time ago. It's not about your happiness. What is, I mean, even what is happiness, right? What it is, is about two people growing to become more like Jesus. And as a result of being married to each other, being encouraged to be more like Jesus.
It's about your holiness. It's about reflecting the thing that God designed it to reflect. So you can't just get divorced when you fall out of love or get bored or aren't made to be happy. That's not how God ever designed it. The disciples say, well, maybe it's better not to get married at all. Well, maybe it, it, maybe it is, right? But here's what I want to do. I want to close this way to remind you that it's not that way. Uh, I want to just address a couple people in the crowd, possibly, okay? And, and what I want you to hear first and foremost is this. None of what I'm about to say or what I've just said applies to someone who is not equally yoked. What I mean by that is not a Christ follower married to a Christ follower. None of this applies to, to them. To your friends who don't know Jesus, this doesn't apply to them. To your friend who knows Jesus, but their spouse doesn't know Jesus, it doesn't apply to them. This applies alone to those who are following Christ, both individually. Married, you're married and you're pursuing a divorce. God's greatest desire is for your marriage never to end in divorce. So if you're in this room right now and you're married and you've considered that thought, here's what I'd ask you to do. Begin praying every single day, at the beginning of your day for your wife, for your husband, and pray for yourself. Because what's happened is if you're considering that, then what Jesus said has happened. Why did Moses have to do this? Because you had a hard heart. Probably because both of you have hard hearts. Probably because both of you have sin that you haven't confessed before your spouse and you're holding on to it. And then you're also holding on to the grudge for them, for them having sin too. Like, so start praying for your spouse daily now. And then if it's because of adultery, because if it's a relationship outside of marriage, listen, I would ask and beg and plead that you pray to God to give you eyes of favor to look upon your spouse again. But if that's not possible, the Bible tells us we have the concession of divorce. Am I encouraging that? By no means. Am I telling you it would be completely reckless for me to sit up here and tell you that applies to your situation? I have no idea what your situation is. No clue. And so, no, I'm not saying that you should do that. What I'm saying is you should fight for your marriage because it's the one thing that you have that reflects the relationship between Christ and his church. For those of you in the room who've been divorced and are remarried, it's possible that some of you who are divorced and remarried need to repent of some of the things that took place in that first marriage. Maybe you need to circle back and ask for forgiveness of some people that you haven't asked forgiveness for. Should you get divorced from your spouse now and try to go figure things? No, no, no. Stay married to who you're married to now and do your very best to grow in holiness and help them grow in holiness. But if there's unrepentant sin, you need to take that to the Lord first. And then you need to take it to whoever that sin is against. You just do. That's what God calls us to over and over and over. In both those camps, I want you to know there is grace at the foot of the cross. I said at the beginning, it's not a spiritual death. It's not. Is it what God desires? No. I don't want to sit here and make you feel happy about the fact that you got a divorce. That's not it but it doesn't mean that you're done in the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't mean that you're done in your relationship with Christ. It doesn't mean you're done in your holiness. You have never been married. You're not married and now you're not sure you want to. You're like the disciples. Maybe it's better if I just don't do this, right? Well, here's what I tell you. Marriage will never, 
will never be the missing ingredient to your identity. It's not going to happen. Too many people walk into marriage and think, well, this person's going to make me happy and fulfilled. It's not going to happen. There's only one person who can make you happy and fulfilled. His name is Jesus Christ. And your job is to pursue him and help your wife or your husband or your spouse just pursue him. That's the goal. And so Mark said this this past week, and I want to repeat it to you and give him credit. You have the opportunity now as a not mere person to prepare your heart rather than later to have to repair your heart as a result of not being ready for marriage. So prepare your heart now. Single people desiring to be married, right? Those who are headed towards it, maybe. Uh, I want to encourage you that it needs to be somebody within those of God's people, somebody who's pursuing Christ themselves. Because we know, the Bible talks about it multiple times, being unequally yoked does not work. Doesn't work for dating, doesn't work for marriage. Mission, mission dating that does not work, right? Some of you have a story, maybe it did work. Okay, great, you're an exception, you're not the rule, okay? Like, does not work. But I will tell you this, being married is one of the most awesome things that you will ever experience on this planet. You literally get to live life with your best friend. And if God blesses you, you get to have little humans that reflect all the good things and the bad things about you. And the only person to blame is you. Right? I don't even think I, that I said that right. I'm not even sure that's grammatically correct. But you is the problem. All right? Like it's you, right? But it's amazing. It's so much fun. And th the greatest thing is you experience intimacy like you're going to experience when you get to heaven with your creator. Why? Because this is the one relationship he set apart to reflect that. And so you have the opportunity to do that. And so married couples, marriage is not about your happiness. It's about your holiness. And so my question for you is, does your marriage reflect God's original design for marriage? Would couples look at you and say, man, I wish I had a marriage like that because these two people are just growing in the Lord and growing with each other. And they, it just seems like they're thriving, they're succeeding. What is different about their marriage that's not different about mine? So if the answer is yes, praise the Lord. If the answer is no, well, then I encourage you to come back next week because we're going to try to figure that out a little bit more. And we're going to try to figure out why that is and talk about something that I think is key to having that kind of marriage. But again, let me say this. Marriage is not about your happiness. It's about your holiness. And so whether you're married or not in this room, the goal is to become more like Jesus. Whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're divorced, whether you're widowed, the goal is to become more like Jesus so that you're ready for whatever relationship, any relationship that you experience in life. That's my encouragement to you today. Let me pray for you. Holy Spirit, we need you. We need you because uh, we are so sinful and selfish and we want to make things about our, ourselves. We're just like those in Jesus' time that wanted to come up with ways to live counter to what you designed and desired. Not because consciously we want to choose that over and over, but because we are so influenced by our sin. And so today I pray that you would just humble our hearts, that you really would remove our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, as the Bible talks about. That we'd be able to see ourselves the way that you designed us to see ourselves, that we would pursue you and holiness, whether we're married, whether we're single, whether we're widowed, whether we're divorced, 
And that as a result of that, we'd be ready for the relationships that you have for us in our life. God, thank you for the gift of marriage. Thank you for the beauty that you uh, created within it, the mystery that exists there of how we become one with someone else, how that reflects your son's love for the church. Thank you for that. I pray that the marriages in this room would be strengthened to be beautiful pictures of that. I pray for those in the room that are planning to be married, that they would do the work that needs to be done so they would be ready to reflect that. Father, would you forgive us when we fall short of that? We do regularly. Would you just forgive us? Would you draw us to our knees in repentance and that each day we'd have a new chance to love our spouses the way that Jesus, you love the church. Jesus, we pray these things in your precious name. Amen.